I can be a bit of a bulldozer when it comes to issues and I suspect you guys know that too. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Scott Morrison has today said he's a bulldozer. That is, a bulldozer wrecks things. A bulldozer knocks things over. And welcome to another episode of Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. From the polls to the party's spin to policies, Below the Line is a limited edition podcast where we try to break free of party, media and populist lines. We're brought to you by La Trobe University together with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain from the University of Melbourne, and I'm joined by political scientists, Professors Annika Gallia and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, and Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. We'll try to cut through the election noise with episodes, well, this is going to be the last one before we vote, but we do have one more afterwards on Tuesday next week, where we find out whether we've made complete idiots of ourselves or indeed perhaps been prescient. Now, today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined in a moment or two by the Head of Public Engagement for Facebook Australia, Mia Garlic. But before we get there, there's been a lot of water that has flown under the bridge in the last few days, as you would expect in the last frenzied days of an election campaign. So let's try and deal with it first. First of all, Annika, do we want a bulldozer re-elected as Prime Minister? <laughs> well, I think this was a very uh, significant shift on uh, on Scott Morrison's part. Last episode, we spoke about the fallout from the last uh, leaders debate, and I, I mentioned my sense was that it was all about character. And what we've seen from Morrison is a is a very definitive character reset in the last few days. I mean, it's an acknowledgement that the tone of positivity, I suppose, that has um, been a feature of Labor's campaign has worked for them. So Morrison is now countering that with this sort of announcement of uh, or recognition of the bulldozer approach and his need to shift, but also some more policy announcements in the last few days. So significant shift, but is it too late? Andrea, is this his real Julia moment? Remember the Julia Gellard, now we'll see the real Julia. Isn't this the equivalent? It is reminiscent of the real Julia Gillard moment, John, and I think the focus groups and the polling would be showing that what Scott Morrison was doing wasn't working and his strategists would be advising him to shift gears. But given that 2.5 million Australians up from 1.5 million have already done postal votes uh, and a lot more have done early polling, many um, won't be capturing this new non-bulldozer version of Scott Morrison, so it could be too late. But also to Annika's point, we're seeing with some of his Facebook posts and also advertising that it's done a shift to the more positive around the policy message of getting young um, Australians into the home buyer market. And I'm sure we can talk about that shortly. And Simon, on Monday night on 7.30 with Lee Sales, he said, look, you know, that's what was required for the Times. Now it's going to be plain sailing. He must be able to read the future. How does he know it's going to be plain sailing from here? What happens if we have another crisis? Does he say, oh, I needed to go into bulldozer mode again? Exactly. Um, um, but it was speaking of bulldozer, John, that was a bulldozer of an interview um, last night. Um, <laughs> I'm just revving up the bulldozer, you know, the big diesel engine and the big blade out. I said, did I make that noise? <laughs> I can't recall an Australian politician as relentlessly on message as Scott Morrison, the ability to go down the barrel 
And the old adage about answer the question you want to answer, not the question you ask. My Lord, he, he is one of the best I've, I've seen in my lifetime. I remember John Howard in the run-up, his last interview with Kerry O'Brien on 7.30 before the 07 election. Morrison is just at a whole nother plane of just going right down the barrel, going right over the top of the interviewer. I'd be really interested in your sense of it, John, as an interviewer. I think he's a very difficult person to interview and what you have to do is keep track of your actual question. And I remember when I did interview him on multiple occasions, including to the absolute fury of one Ray Hadley once who said their bromance was over because he chose to do an interview in Melbourne with me instead of his regular spot with Ray Hadley. You have to just constantly say, look, that's a really interesting answer to a different question. The one I actually asked you was this, would you care to address it? You have to be relentlessly polite or the audience turn on you, but you also have to keep track of what he hasn't in fact addressed. Lee did that in, on many occasions last night. It was a valiant effort, but you know, it is a word soup. But let's move on. Still with you, Simon, uh, super for housing. It's been greeted with a, an outcry of criticism from economists, although the property developer market quite likely. <laughs> Will it gather them some extra votes is what it's all about. Uh, look, all the policy announcements are on the wrong side of the ledger. Um, we need policy that increases supply. Tinkering with demand is only going to drive up, helping people get on the market will only drive up prices. We need some really out-of-the-box thinking about uh, how to bring more houses onto the market. One so crazy that, ending negative gearing tax breaks for middle class and retiree investors. Uh, well, that didn't go over so well, but here's an idea. Um, uh, give give um, landlords a capital gains holiday on investment properties. If you put it on the market and you sell it to a, uh, a low income or a first uh, time uh, home buyer, we just don't give you the usual 50% uh, capital gains tax rate. We give you zero or something like that. Something radical to, to put houses on the market. Plenty of houses in Australia is not enough new construction. Um, what we've got to do uh, and that would that would have the consequence of driving uh, costs down as what you typically get with a supply shock. All right, Annika, who's it targeting this policy and why has it suddenly come out after nine years of no, 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 suddenly, yes, we can do it. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's not the first policy they've been talking about in terms of home ownership, this election. They went into the election with the, the home buyer's guarantee, which was the signature policy that they were running against, um, against Labor. So this is a last minute policy shift from the Liberal Party. And I've been thinking, you know, one of the problems with the with the campaign so far, or the challenges that both parties have faced, is trying to strike a balance between having big picture ideas versus having too much abstraction in policies. So this sort of some this policy that's a bit more concrete is obviously designed to appeal to voters at the very very last minute. But who is an interesting question. Is it the first home buyers themselves or their parents? I mean, the average age now, I think research was done last year of a first home buyer in Australia is about 36 years old. And so I was sort of cal uh, calibrating that with the average age of, uh, of Liberal Party voters. And up until about 34, we see um, most young voters vote for either the Greens or Labor. It's at that exact point, 34, 35, where voting allegiance actually shifts to the Liberal Party. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting way in which it targets exactly the right age group where we see that sort of balance shift between ALP and Liberal Party. 
Now, there's two parts to this policy. One is about trying to help people buy a house. The other is about it's being perceived as an attack on super and not just industry, but also retail super because it pulls money out of the accumulated superannuation funds. Now, uh, Tim Wilson and Andrew Bragg have both been red hot on this in the last parliament. Tim Wilson wrote a book about this specific policy idea of accessing people's super and freeing it up. The Liberal Party, let's be blunt about it, they don't like industry super in particular because it's taking power away from the top end of town. So, Carso, is this going to resonate the super side of the debate, not just the superannuation side of the debate, not just the housing supply side of the debate? I, I think it will, but it's also a bit of dabbling at the edges. It's 50,000 that it's capped up, capped at for the Liberal Party policy. And at this point in time, they're saying that 50,000 has to be returned on the sale of the house. The other thing is we don't have the costings on this. They're meant to be coming out today or tomorrow. Uh, and we're four days out from the election. Um, and the other thing is Labor's got their policy on this and that's also dabbling at the edges. It only gives 10,000 lucky Australians the option of co-owning their house with the uh, government if Labor's elected. And I should declare I have done some work and will continue to do some work as a freelancer for Industry Super Australia. So I, have a, I haven't got a dog in this fight. I've got a mouse in this fight. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. Our election podcast, Below the Line, is wrapping up soon, but the conversation's evidence-based journalism never stops. Every day, we publish high-quality news and analysis written by academic experts and edited by journalists. To become a subscriber, click the Get Newsletter button on our website or follow the link in the show notes. Many thanks for your support. Now, back to the podcast. Moving on, we're joined for this episode, just before we go to the polls on Saturday, those that haven't already voted, by Mia Garlick. She's from Facebook's Australia head office, and she can provide us with some insights into what's been going on in this extraordinarily different environment to any election we've ever had before. And Mia, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And while we're making declarations, Carso... Oh, well, John, as you know, I've been doing research um, courtesy of some Facebook grants that allows me to explore misinformation and disinformation. So you have done some work with Facebook in the way I've done some work with Industry Super, but blah, 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 let's get that out of the way. Now, tell us about the ad library, if you could, please, Mayor, because this is something quite new in this election cycle. How does it work and what does it do? You know, with political advertising, uh, there have been concerns expressed in the past that people couldn't necessarily see what the ads were. We started over a year ago now in Australia, both requiring people who want to run ads that are classed as either political or social issue ads, that they had to have a disclaimer. So they have to be registered, um, based in Australia, and then their ads will appear with a disclaimer about who paid for the ad. And then all of those ads go into an ad library and they'll be available for people to have some transparency on what political ads are running across Facebook and Instagram for seven years. So it's um, definitely great for political commentators and researchers and hopefully adds a bit of transparency to some of the advertising process this election on our platforms. So are they listed there in real time straight away? Yeah, that's right. So they have to go through an approval process and then once they're up and running, uh, then you can start to see them. Okay. And how many people are looking at them? Have you got that data? Is it turning out to be something people do peruse or like most libraries, is it something that you're comforted to know it's there, but you don't actually go there much yourself? 
Well, I'll leave it to you guys as to how many times you're checking it daily because I feel like you're you're probably um, watching it closely. We don't have data on how many people are looking at it, but we have seen, you know, it started to be incorporated in a number of different um uh, programs. I think Insiders has been uh, referring to it so certainly and that we've seen some journalists writing about it and academics analysing it. So I think it is helping create awareness of it. Um, whether that's trickled down to the average punter, not quite sure yet. So I guess we'll see as the public debate continues. Mia, it's been very useful for us to get an idea of the patterns of the spend and what we're seeing um, by playing around with some of the parameters that at least in the last 30 days, it's the ALP that's really outspending the Liberal Party. Um, and we're also seeing in those really tight contests where independents are contesting, such as the one with Zoe Daniel up against Tim Wilson, that now there's been a surge in ad spending by Tim Wilson uh, and we're seeing a similar pattern with Josh Frydenberg up against Monique Ryan, that Josh's spending is outclassing Monique. Um, so you're right, it is adding a degree of transparency. Is there any, any other surprises we should be looking at there? Well, I had a quick look at the top 10 over the last seven days. And obviously, I mean, it's good to see the Australian Electoral Commission is also one of the top spenders trying to make sure they're getting out authoritative information about how we all get out to vote. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the good things about the way we've structured it is it's not just political parties. So you're also getting to see um, social issue ads. So people who are not political parties, but who are posting about things that are connected to the election. Um, and so you can see that there are sort of um, climate focused organisations like Solutions and others who are um, adding in um, some, some ad dollars to try to uh, influence and, and contribute to the public debate. So I think that's the, the benefit of the way we've structured it is that it's not just purely political, it's also the broader social issues. Uh, politicians use and parties using it instead of, say, free messaging, which we can also track through the Facebook tool of CrowdTangle, or is it something they're doing in conjunction? I guess it's really important to point out that given the three-day ad blockout occurs now with mainstream media, the campaign really shifts gears and moves on to the digital space. Yeah, well, I think that, um, I mean, obviously, when um, you're talking about best practice with political parties or with any other organisation, you know, you would typically say only put money behind the things that do well organically, because otherwise, you know, you're sort of wasting funds. You, you really want to um, get content into people's feed because it's quite a personal experience that actually resonates with people. So you, you can sometimes see a bit of a test and learn on the organic side and then the things that resonate um, without putting money behind it, you then put money behind so that you're spending your money wisely. Um, and and then I think, you know, in terms of the, the election blackout, obviously we have supported um, uh, ensuring that there's parity uh, between broadcast and social media, that, you know, we're happy to respect blackouts in Australia, which we do in other countries that do have those laws like New Zealand. Um, but until those laws change, yes, I think you do see a slight change in the strategy uh, being deployed by the different parties. Isn't it a bit weird that you can still advertise on social media, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook, Twitter and all the rest of it, but you can't put an ad on television, radio or in the newspaper? That's just absurd. I mean, it's not like we're using Morse code anymore, is it? 
Well, look, we, we have in, in the large number of regulatory um, processes that have looked at regulation of digital platforms, we have been ad, um, advocating that the, there should be parity applied. Certainly New Zealand, um, you know, there is a 24-hour election blackout and, and we work to respect that. So, you know, it's certainly possible um, to, to give people that space. Um, but for now, the, the laws don't require that. And so, um, you know, we're working to respect the laws that are in place at the time. When you've got a client like the ALP whose spend is well north of a million dollars, just picking up on something I knew that the American campaigns, uh, US presidential campaigns did, does Facebook second people into the campaigns to help them use the platform more efficaciously? When you've got, I imagine, you know, it's a very special client when they're going to drop that much money over that shorter time period. Can you say something a, a little bit about that side of, uh, of, of things? And just before you do, to give context, as of the time we're recording this, the Labor Party have spent $1.36 million and the Liberal Party only 260000 So in terms of magnitude, and that's not adding up individual candidates or the union movement or other backers, that's just the straight top of the line. Uh, you know, Labor Party's like five, six times more than the Liberal Party. So Mia, what do you make of it? Well, in terms of how we structure the teams internally, um, when it comes to political parties or advocacy groups, um, we don't differentiate based on spend level. The core focus is bipartisanship, offering everyone the same information and tools and advice at the same time. And so we work very hard to make sure that the teams that um, that uh, support uh, political parties and provide that information, it's not based on spend level. And then um, we try to make sure that, you know, we're running trainings at the same time, we're providing briefings about election integrity measures at the same time. So everyone's getting the same information. And then it's really up to the parties and their strategy as to how they choose to do it. But they're all internal teams that we um, staff irrespective of spend. Sorry, are you seriously telling me that if someone's spending one and a half million dollars, they get only the same level of support as someone who spends $100,000. I'm seriously telling you. If I was that client, I'd say, hang on, don't you look after a big client like me a little better than some little tadpole out there? I think when you come to political parties, it's really important that we're providing that um, bipartisanship and that parity. Mia, what sort of things have you seen um, that have been done differently this campaign compared to 2019? I mean, one of the things I've observed, observed is that 2019, Scott Morrison was very good at putting out videos and it would appear, looking at the crowd tangle data, that um, Albanese and the ALP are now doing a lot more videos uh, and a lot more personal narrative. What, what's some of the things that you've observed? Yeah, it is interesting when you look at the videos in terms of, I mean, if you look at, uh, we've provided a public crowd tangle dashboard. So um, people who really want to see what some of the big political um, posts are on the platform can go to apps.crowdtangle.com forward slash ANZ forward slash boards forward slash Australian election 2022. It's not a mouthful at all. It's super easy. Just rewind back and you can, you know, <laughs> pop that in your browser and check it out as we um, head towards election day. But if you look at that, it's interesting, you know, in terms of the high level of interactions with posts, it's sort of the usual suspects in terms of obviously, you know, the prime minister, the opposition leader and the main political parties. And then you also have, um, you know, Tanya Plibersek and Pauline Hanson getting lots of interactions. But if you switch to video posts, you can see that, um, there are videos um, by um, candidates like uh, Lucy Wicks and um, Jason Felinski and Fiona Patton have um, been getting lots of interactions and views. So um, there's certainly, um, you know, a smattering of people uh, really 
doubling down on video format. I think the thing um, that's interesting is I think uh, last election we definitely saw Instagram being used very differently to Facebook. So Instagram was sort of used more for that very personal anecdote and it feels as though everyone's decided to play a very straight bat across each of the platforms this election. Has TikTok been used at all? Casa, have you got any idea on that? Because you're Professor of Social Media. Yeah, TikTok's certainly increased compared to 2019, but it seems to be the younger, more savvy MPs that are using it. And we've mentioned this before on the podcast, like um, ALP's Julian Hill, because you need to keep it short and pithy. And one of the things we know about politicians is sometimes they can be a little bit long-winded. Um, is that an unfair comment? No, not at all. In fact, I think we have to make sure that we don't do the same as well. So let's get into weeding out fake ads altogether. Have you rubbed anybody out and sent them to the naughty corner? So there have been a few instances. Um, some of them have been um, publicly reported on, and I'm sure it will all come out when we do the um, the committee uh, that reviews the election and, and what's happened. Can you give us a scoop? Is there anyone you've rubbed out that hasn't yet been publicly really revealed? Well, might have to save that one for the committee hearing and the AEC's testimony. Oh, go on. <laughs> you can't give all the scoops to the podcast. It's a rule. <laughs> so there has been some concern on both sides of politics. One um, coming from the Liberal Party is the sneaky carbon tax ads, which some are saying misleading. And then on the other side of politics, it's about the automated um, pension card. And I'm sure you've had some concerns raised about these. What's Facebook's policy on allowing those ads to continue to run and the and the messages around those, which is somewhat misleading, given that neither are actually policies of the party? Yeah, so in terms of how we approach sort of misinformation broadly on the platform, where it's harmful misinformation, so particularly during the pandemic where there was harmful health misinformation that would interfere with people's ability to understand how to, you know, protect themselves or, or get um, get proper treatment from, um, from COVID, then we would remove that and that would happen regardless of whether it was a political party or just, um, you know, any organisation or person sharing harmful health misinformation. Then organic content that is not political content gets fact-checked by um, third-party fact-checkers who we pay to fact-check content. So that's AAP, RMIT and Agence France um, Press. And then um, when it comes to political advertising, um, you know, we feel that rather than us interfering with the political debate of this country, you know, a US-based multinational tech company um, should really not be the arbiter of truth of what political parties are claiming in ads. So that's why we provide the ad um, library so that there can be transparency and hopefully a robust marketplace of ideas as people um, debate um, the various claims they're made. And so that's really where the transparency is designed to come in. And of course, Mayor, at the federal level, there's no obligation for truth in political advertising under current laws. Yep. All of these things can be um, discussed and debated as part of um, the ongoing conversations that we'll have, I'm sure, about um, the different rules that should apply um, to sort of misinformation and, and political advertising. It's always interesting after an election, win, lose or draw, the parties have a post-mortem and whichever party loses tends to be pretty savage on some of its own organisational fails. It'll be very interesting, interesting to see what comes up in the wash-up and what lessons then are applied in the forthcoming state elections later this year in Victoria and then early next year in New South Wales. Are you expecting this to be a continual evolution? and various trends adopted also from, say, France, where social media played a vital role and made a, a major contribution to getting the message out. 
Well, certainly from our perspective, I mean, there's ongoing elections around the world. And so we're constantly trying to liaise with local authorities and, and um, local stakeholders to understand the issues on the ground. But then we do apply, you know, the learnings from each election to the next one to identify what the best sort of mix is. And then obviously we've had a, a large number of committee hearings in Australia. You know, there was the Victorian committee hearing uh, into electoral matters and then there's the federal one. So I think this will be an area for ongoing public debate and concern. And I think it's... It... So globally, who is the best? <laughs> the thing that we uh, think is really strong in Australia is the um, code of practice on disinformation and misinformation. We'll be releasing our transpa- um, second transparency report in the coming weeks. And I think, um, you know, being able to provide that insight into how the big platforms manage this type of content um, can help contribute to this public debate so that then we can get the right regulatory settings in place. But who is the most creative? We've seen in Ukraine, for instance, extraordinary creativity by a government under attack. Who's from Facebook's point of view, you see the whole world, as you've said, where do you see the most interesting and creative use of your platform? Well, I wouldn't want to um, have us be adjudicating it. I mean, I think the situation in Ukraine, obviously, there's been a strong use of social media to get the message out and for the for President Zelensky to be communicating both with the public and the global audience. But um, for us, you know, it's really about trying to make sure that um, political parties have access to the right information and tools to be able to get their message out effectively and also allow people to express themselves in ways that are consistent both with the local laws and with our community standards rather than evaluating the quality from our perspective. All right, we'll do that for you then instead. And thank you. You've been very generous with your time. And I know how busy, uh, in particular, in this part of the cycle, your organisation must be. So we're very grateful to you. And I'm sure the listeners to our little podcast have learned a great deal, as have we. Thank you, Mia. Mia Garlic from Facebook Australia, revealing some of the secrets from behind the scenes. We've only got a few minutes left, and this is our last podcast before people go those who haven't already voted go to queue up for their democracy sausage on Saturday. I do foreshadow we are doing a post-mortem next Tuesday and we'll be releasing that late on Tuesday. We'll be recording it at lunchtime at Latrobe University in front of an adoring crowd of students press ganged specifically for the purpose who were told that they'll fail Andrea Carson's (laughs) subject unless they turn up and create sound effects for us in the background. There's a couple of things that we've not really had time to talk about and have barely featured in fact in this election campaign and Annika I'd like first to start with the growing divide between the city and the country. I spoke to a National Party senior MP during the week who said the mood as he travels around the mood in the cities is just completely different to the mood in the bush. How come this hasn't ever been picked up by the mainstream media, if indeed it's true? I think it is, but how come it's not talked about? Well, I think it's a real deficiency in Australian politics, the attention that we give to what is happening in rural areas and how how people, I suppose, practice and and their their perceptions of politics in country areas. Um, It's, look, I think we have some perceptions of of the rural electorate that revolve around fairly outdated notions of of country-mindedness. And we know that this is changing over time um, as there are structural changes in the economy, as as people are are moving to, to country areas, as there's generational change in these places as well. So country areas are now really, I think, diverse and interesting um, electoral spaces that go beyond, well beyond the sort of perception of farming the be-all and end-all of, of the rural economy. Health services, education, they hold just as many jobs as um, primary industries here. So I think it's a space where we don't know 
enough about what is is going on. I mean, and climate change is the other thing that's very, very interesting because the opinion on climate change is not straightforward. We've got uh, parts of the agricultural industry that see climate change obviously as a threat, but then other parts of that industry are just as concerned with mitigating the long-term effects of climate change. Simon, we've seen exactly the same in the UK, the Brexit vote and then the general election. The divide between London and the city and the country was huge. In the US, it's the same in France. Marine Le Pen got 60% of the vote in rural France compared to Macron. So we're, we're pretty much, I mean, we're surprised, but it's happening all over the world. I just don't want to get ahead of our skis on this one too much. A couple of observations. You know, Australia is, as we sometimes forget, the most urban country on the planet. You know, 89, 90% of us live in cities or large towns, say, urban environments. And as Annika was speaking, I was wondering, can I think of a seat, a rural seat that's in play? I had a look, Simon. And I mean, if we take Queensland, the LNP out of the equation. Yeah, maybe Leichhardt, I suppose. But that's, that's Cairns, right? Every other seat that the Nationals hold is on a margin 2pp of pretty much 10% or above. Yeah. So it's, it's as though, I mean, the party has obviously diminished in stature over the, over the years, but those seats that they do hold, they hold on to by large margins. And I do expect them to keep them this election. I guess I, I was talking about the mood. Casa, you've got a rural background you can draw on. I, I do, John, growing up on a dairy farm. In answer to Simon's question, I think there are some rural seats at play. Cowper in New South Wales, where the Voices Of movement is, they've really been taking advantage of local communities. And Damien Drum in Victoria, um, next door to the seat of Indi, is now a three-horse race. So he stood down so there's, the Liberals can stand against the Nats, yeah. What seat's that? Nichols with Sam Birrell running. There are a few contests, but you're absolutely right. They're few and far between. And, and that's interesting. I didn't know we were the most urbanised country on earth. Look, we're running out of time, we're way over time, and I want you all to have a chance to make some final observations, of course. So last time we had a look at predictions, so let's not do that again, but instead look at maybe things that have been overlooked or we haven't picked up on. Um, Simon, let's stay with you. A bit of a tell in Scott Morrison's interview last night when I think Lee Sales asked him about the teal seats and he went, oh, there's a different issue mix there and da-da-da. But you got the strong sense that the Libs understand there's a there's a pivoting happening in Australian politics. It's something I alluded to last time. Uh, perhaps it begins with Benelong in 07, but continues right through where, uh, like in the United States, the most wealthy parts of the United States are actually pretty strong Democratic seats in congressional elections and in presidential voting around a cluster of issues that really cleave just quite differently uh, to what animates voters in outer metro. And I just wonder if we're coming up in this a pretty profound moment in Australian politics where the Liberals' base is no longer uh, this uh, in, in the extremely wealthy pockets of Australia, but in outer metro mortgage belt Australia. And I am that's going to be one of the sort of takeouts from this election. If the Teal candidates are successful, we're talking about a fundamental rejigging of certainly of conservative politics in Australia. And Anika, do you think the, the big independence push, it's more than just a passing fad? Do you think it might be there to stay? Yeah, I think that there is definitely something in that because we've always had independence in Australian politics, but we haven't seen independence so well resourced 
so well organised and reasonably aligned on a number of progressive policy issues that I think will both let the electorate know or sort of, you know, make us appreciate that the diversity of politics is a much more diverse landscape than just the two, two major parties, um, but also may give credence to a, a sort of a different type of organising politics from the ground up. And is there anything else you think we haven't been talking about that's been overlooked? Look, I think, well, something certainly to watch out for between now and our next podcast when we do the debrief is how the result itself is handled. So Mia um, was talking about issues of, of transparency. Um, I think that, you know, with a result that could potentially be close, I'd be interested to watch some of the discourse around whether or not, um, you know, people were robbed, whether there was electoral fraud that was going on. We know that this happened and was very prominent in the, in the American election, but we also know that the Australian Electoral Commission is incredibly well trusted and by global standards, one of the best electoral management bodies in the whole world. So I'd just be sort of looking out for that sort of discourse propping up. Okay, because there's been more nutbag candidates in this in this election than we've ever seen before. It's extraordinary. Well, there are those candidates and then there's also, there's going to be seats in play where the result is going to be very, very close and it may well come down to a handful of votes. So there'll be extra scrutiny there. All right. And Professor of Press, Carso, what do you make of the, the way the media have dealt with all of these challenges? Because there was a fabulous piece that Margaret Simons contributed to the Nine newspaper, City Morning Herald and The Age, about whether this is the end of the, the Murdoch era of the, the tabloids and the Murdoch empire telling people how to vote. Well, I think potentially we've already seen that. I'm not sure 2022 is the mark of that. But my observation would be I think Australians are now switching off. If we look at the West Coast newspapers, the front pages are no longer talking about the election. We all know that um, people are rushing to vote early. And if we look at what the top stories are on Facebook, they're not about the election. They're about the Queen um, celebrating her anniversary. It's about Andrew Simon's death. They're not about election stories. So I, I think it's going to be a bit of a, a slow walk to the end. All right, and I would expect between now and Saturday, the Labor Party, if they've got any brains to rub together, would release a transition to government plan in order to reassure wavering voters that they're actually stepping up and they've got some proposals and some suggestions and ideas on what they'll do if they get their hands on the levers of power. We haven't seen that. It's all been so superficial. In fact, it's enough to fill a serious political watcher with despair the way this election campaign yeah. The winner is on a plane to Tokyo for a quad leaders meeting, if we have a winner, clear, but in the, in the middle of next week. Do they go themselves or do they send the foreign minister? Who might that be? Well, yeah, but whichever party wins. I mean, if, if it's clear is my point. If it's a close election and it's a hung parliament, who is the government of Australia next Tuesday or Wednesday? Just on that point, the AAC said that it's moving forward the counting of the postal votes. They'll start on Sunday because they are worried about the huge number they have to get through. And out of the last four elections, two of them we haven't known on election night, so they're preparing for that. Um, as to John's question, Anthony Albanese says that if he's elected, he will be the one jumping on that plane to Tokyo. One of the remarkable features of this campaign is that this is a government that has failed on so many levels in so many portfolios with so many ministers who have been embroiled in scandal. You've got to wonder, how come the Labor Party isn't just romping it in? Casso, what's gone on here? 
Well, I think it's pretty clear, John. I think Anthony Albanese has underperformed. He's not a great communicator. He gets his words mixed up. And we're also seeing that the really important policy issues that have been home territory for Labor have not been discussed very much in this election. I'm talking about health spending in hospitals, higher education, just education more broadly. These should be strongholds for Labor, and we've hardly heard any policy detail on them. Aged care. I mean, all you have to do is mention aged care and people rise up in revolt. Simon, how come this campaign has been so, at one level, dysfunctional? Well, I think he has put aged care front and centre. I agree um, Albanese is not a naturally gifted communicator. Morrison is. For all that you might say about him as a bulldozer of a prime minister, as I observed earlier, just down the barrel, just unrelenting on message. But here's the other thing. Maybe this election isn't close. Maybe the betting markets are right with Labor at a buck twenty-five and the coalition at four dollars. And maybe as analysts, we're so scarred by 2019 and the polling failure that we we think it's much closer than it really might be. What do you think, John? Um, I think you're both about right. Um, I'm astonished that this government, which personally I regard as one of the worst governments I've seen in my entire life of watching politics since I was, what, 17 years old and started to take an interest. I I mean, I just think there's so many incompetent ministers, so many scandals, so many mistakes. I can't believe they're even competitive. But on the other hand, I can't believe the Labor Party are firing so many blanks. So, look, you know, where do we get to? We'll see. We'll see in just a few days and then everything will be revealed. Look, it's been absolutely wonderful. You've been listening to Below the Line, presented by me, John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne with Professors Annika Gaya and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney and Associate Professor Andrea Carson from La Trobe University, the instigator of this little fun experiment, Below the Line, which has turned out to be uh, really quite wonderfully insightful during this election campaign. We did it just as a bit of a whim. It's turned out to be very popular and we're grateful to you all for your support and your feedback. Remember, Michelle Grattan is also providing political commentary and analysis through the Conversation website. Our producers, to whom we're indebted, are Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark. And I hope you'll join us again. We'll do one more episode, a wash-up, a post-mortem, next Tuesday at La Trobe University. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to that as well. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Enjoying this podcast, why not check out The Conversation Weekly? Hosted by me, Dan Marino, in San Francisco. 
and me, Gemma Ware, in London. Each week, we talk to scholars and researchers, getting the inside story on new scientific breakthroughs. The standard model is probably the most successful scientific theory that we've ever developed. And the history and context behind the headlines. The United States starts to funnel money in Afghanistan, but the people they end up allying with are the most reactionary groups. We look at how we got here in the first place. Driving is a lot more polluting than aviation. And so if we can sort out the car transport, we can do a very big difference to global emissions. And find out what's really happening on the ground. 80% of these Rohingya refugees are women and children. There have been cases of trafficking, smuggling, and even killing. And finally, we dive into some of the world's most pressing issues. Many ocean-based industries today are growing faster than the global economy. It describes a new phase in humanity's relationship with the ocean on the onset of the 21st century. By talking to scholars who spend their whole lives studying them. If we can really understand the basic mechanisms that are shaping plasticity, this could become a way that we could impact a lot of lives. Find us at theconversation.com. Or follow The Conversation Weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally listen.